So I, my question for you as we begin is, when do you find it easiest to enjoy someone? When do you find it easiest to enjoy someone? And if you're like me, uh, the easiest people for me to enjoy are simply those who are enjoyable, right? <laughs> what makes someone enjoyable? Someone's enjoyable when they're doing what I think they should be doing, or if they're acting how I want them to act, or if they're treating me like I'd like to be treated, if they're doing the things I think they should be doing. And as, as a parent, I find it easiest to enjoy Hudson when he's obeying, right? You know, if, you're, if you've been a parent, you know it's easier to enjoy, enjoy your kids when they're doing what you say. When I find it easiest to express my love for him, to hug him, to cherish him, to kind of, you know, give him kisses and hugs and, and snuggle with him is, is when he's doing what I want him to do. But it's hard to enjoy um, a child when they're disobeying. It's hard to enjoy someone when they're not treating you as you'd like them to treat you. It's hard to enjoy someone who's your friend but who's being a bad friend. And a couple of years ago, I was praying through uh, the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And these are the characteristics that God gives us His Spirit, puts it in us, and then He starts growing these things in our life. And I, the thing I was thinking about was, if the Holy Spirit is making me into someone who reflects what God is like, then all these fruits of the Spirit are what God is like toward me before I begin to reflect them, you know, what He's like to anybody else. So all those things we list off, that's what God is like, and God's trying to grow His character in us. And so... What my reflection was thinking, okay, if this describes what God is like toward me, and he's all of these things uh, toward me before I'm ever transformed into someone who treats other people like that, then what, what does that mean? What does it mean for God to love me? What does it mean for God to be at peace with me? What does it God mean for God to be kind to me, to be patient with me, and so forth? And the one that was the most difficult for me was joy. That's the second fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace. What does it mean for God to enjoy me? What, what does it mean that he would have joy towards me, that he would enjoy me? And I looked back at my journal this week to see what I, exactly what I wrote down. And I wrote, you know, this is what it means, that God is, has joy toward me before I have it to anybody else. It, it's like God enjoys me and delights in me. And I asked, how does that feel? What does it feel like to be the object of God's affection I wrote down in my journal, I have no idea. I just got stuck there. It's like, I don't know what this means that God would have joy towards me. And perhaps you're like me and you think, well, why would God enjoy me? What, what's to enjoy? I do things wrong all the time. I'm always messing up. I don't go a week or a day or an hour without sinning. And I'm far from per- perfect. What would he actually delight in when he looks at me? And perhaps like me, you find it easier to say, God loves me, than to say, God likes me. That he actually likes me, he enjoys me, he delights in me. And we think, well, how, why wouldn't God like me? What's it like? You know, I'm a screw-up. I mess up all the time. How could he ever like someone like me? And if that's you, I'm really excited for you to be here today. Because we're continuing, as I said, this seven-week series on connecting and relationships. And uh, the, the message today is on your love no matter what. And last, so last week we started learning these four messages. It was a seven-week series, but four of the messages that are kind of the core of it are just based off these four statements, and they come from an organization called Connected Families, and they're trying to work with parents to be um, to say, be able to say these things to their kids. And I asked them if I could 
I used these in a sermon series. They said yes, and Katie and I went to their parenting course last fall, I think, or so. And we just really love them. And I think it applies to all relationships. That Their thing is, they say, these are four messages every child longs to hear. But I think every person longs to hear these four messages. And we long to hear them first and foremost from God. And so last week the message was, you are safe with me. And that message lays a foundation of grace. It's undeserved, unearned favor. And we receive this grace from God so we can pass it on towards other people. And today, you are loved no matter what is the message. And the big question for us today is, how does God treat us when we're weak, needy, and sinful? How does God treat us when we're weak, needy, and sinful? Think to yourself, how would you answer that question? How does God treat me when I'm weak, needy, and and sinful. You don't have to answer it out loud, but just think, what is your natural response to that? I'm weak today, God. I'm needy today. I'm sinful. I've been messing up. How does God treat you? How does he respond to our failures? How does he treat us when we misbehave? What is his attitude, disposition, and posture toward us in those moments? And this, as I said, has been a personal area of study of mine. Does God actually enjoy me? Does he like me? Or does he kind of have buyer's remorse? Like, okay, I paid the price for you to get into this family, and it's kind of like I'd I'd like to exchange you for a better model or something. You know, does he have buyer's remorse? And Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love God above all else and love others as yourself. But he also adds uh, loving others as yourself includes your enemies. Love your enemies, meaning people who have not done anything good for you, people who have even mistreated you and done things that you don't, like they've wronged you and we we can find it easy to love those who love us it's easy to love people when they're lovable isn't it and usually they're lovable when they're loving us or doing what we say but how do we love our enemies people who have hurt us who have disrespected us who've annoyed us ignored us and treated us poorly how do we do that how is that even possible that as someone is treating you being an enemy towards you that you love them and so think about this. We, we, I asked this question, we've been asking this since the beginning of this series. In which of your relationships do you want to experience more connection? In which of your human relationships do you want to experience more connection? And I'd encourage you either have it in your head throughout this sermon or write it down because we'll do some more things with that later. Maybe it's a child or a friend or a relative or a parent or a coworker or a neighbor. It's someone that you want to experience more connection with. It just feels like, man, there's distance here. There's disconnection. We're not, uh, we're not tight as we used to be. And write that name down or have it in mind throughout this sermon. And then secondly, what do they do that makes them difficult to love? What do they do that just drives you crazy? What do they do that it's hurtful? When are they a difficult person to love? When is it difficult to love them? When do you find it most difficult to enjoy them? And if you're willing, write that down too. If you're, maybe you don't want to do it if it's the person next to you. Uh, if, but you know, have the name in your head or write it down. And write down, when are they most difficult to love? When do you have most difficulty loving them? And this sermon is about how to communicate the message, you are loved no matter what, to these people, even when they're doing what makes them difficult. To love. And in the context of parenting, Connected Families, this organization says, misbehavior is the golden opportunity for true, unconditional love. Misbehavior is the golden opportunity for true, unconditional love. And just change the word misbehavior uh, to anything, and you can see how it applies to all relationships. So when someone is being a jerk, it's the golden opportunity to show true, unconditional love. When someone's being a bad friend, it's the golden opportunity for true, unconditional love. When someone is failing as a coworker, 
It's the golden opportunity to show true unconditional love. When someone is failing as a coworker, or when they're when somebody is you know, mistreating you, it's a golden opportunity for true unconditional love. And so, what does it look like for us to love people in our lives, even when the people in our lives don't deserve it? Even when they're doing what hurts us or annoys us or drives us crazy or disrespects us or belittles us or makes our life harder, what does it look like to show unconditional love while they are doing those things that make them hard to love? And if you're thinking, if you're thinking there's no way I'm going to be able to do that, uh, I can't do that in my own strength and my own power, well, that's a great question to be asking. You should be asking that. How in the world am I supposed to do that? It's the right question. And the only way we'll be able to give this kind of love to other people is if we receive this kind of love from God first. The only way we'll be able to love another person no matter what is if we feel loved no matter what by God. So we're going to focus on two ways to express love no matter what. The one is empathy, and the other is affection. And these are two of the hardest things to do no matter what. When someone's mistreating you, when a child's misbehaving, when a coworker is being a jerk, when a friend isn't talking to you, those are the hardest moments to show empathy and affection, when you've been wronged or hurt or let down. And that tells us that empathy and affection are a good way to show grace, to give people what they don't deserve, to love them no matter what. And the fuel that enables us to do this for others is first receiving it from God. And so let's look at how God shows us empathy by looking at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. One of the primary reasons that this book was written is to encourage these followers of Jesus who are running the race of faith, and they're in the middle of it, and they feel beat up, they feel like giving up, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, keep going, we just keep going, make it to the finish line. And Hebrews 4, 14-16 articulates a powerful truth for, that runs throughout this book and is a huge encouragement to when you're in the middle of the race of faith and you're like, this is hard, I'm tired, I don't want to keep going, is to say, this is why you should keep going. This is why you should make it to the finish line. And in these three verses, verse 15 is the foundation of verses 14 and 16. So verse 15 states two truths about Jesus that make verses 14 and 16 possible. So first, verse 15 calls Jesus our high priest. And in the Old Testament, uh, there, this group of priests would run the tabernacle and the temple, which was the place where God said, I'm going to make my presence dwell on you. And the tabernacle was like this tent, and then later the temple was this physical building. And the priests ran that. They were kind of the ones doing operation. And above all the priests was the high priest, who's kind of looking over it all. And when a person would have a sin or they want to give thanks, they would come before the priest, and if it's sin, they bring their, their animal to the priest, an animal without spot or without blemish, and the person would confess their sins in the animal's head, and then the priest would slaughter the animal. And that was the sacrifice. It was taking the penalty for your sins in your place. And so this is what the, first, the priest would do. And so you can think of the priest and the high priest kind of like a, a bridge between God and the, the people, between God and his people. The high priest would represent the people before God, and he would represent God to the people, saying, okay, I'm bringing your sins before God, and now I'm showing you God is merciful and gracious, and he forgives you. And so uh, this is Jesus' role, too, when he's called the high priest. He is a bridge between God and God's people. He connects us. And so first, this verse tells us that Jesus acts as our high priest, and second, it tells us what qualifies him to actually carry out this role effectively. He has the title, but what makes him capable and qualified to do this role? And verse 15 has this description of his capability. 
It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And perhaps it's stated in the negative because we often think, well, he's not able to sympathize with my weaknesses. And it says, no, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And this ability is what makes him capable of being a good high priest. And you think weaknesses is kind of like this broad term uh, that can cover almost any human need, any felt need we might have. And he's able to sympathize with human needs. And to sympathize means to suffer with. Empathy and compassion are closely connected. That when you sympathize or empathize with someone, you're feeling what they're feeling right along with them. You're sharing in their hurt and their suffering. And your heart is drawn towards them with compassion and tenderness. And so this is telling us there's no human need that Jesus doesn't understand and can't empathize with. There's no need to which he is our high priest will say, I just don't get that. I, I don't know what that's like. I don't understand. That doesn't make sense to me. When we're coming to him with our weaknesses and our needs and our sin, he doesn't say, I, I just don't get what you're going through. It says he isn't unable to sympathize with our needs, our struggles, our challenges, our hardships, our difficulties, our temptations. And verse 15 says it, that he can do this because he's been tempted in every respect as we are, and yet without sin. And the assumption here is that a high priest who has not been tempted in every respect as we are would not be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That, and that's not Jesus. He's been tempted in every respect, respect as we are, but has never given in. And so Jesus, the eternal Son of God, became fully human. And this means that Jesus knows what it's like to be us. He knows what it's like to be weak and needy and sinful, sorry, not sinful, fragile, and so when we are weak, needy, and sinful, he's cold, aloof. Uh, he, isn't, he isn't cold, aloof, disinterested, and his heart isn't just like closed off to us. He, his eyes, if you can imagine, are expressing this understanding, this compassion, this empathy. I know what it's like. I get it. I know what you're going through. And when we're weak, needy, and sinful, Jesus' heart is compassionate, not condemning. It's full of mercy, not judgment. He understands the human condition. So being fully human means he knows exactly what it's like to be us. Jesus is one with us because he's united himself with humanity, becoming like us in every way except for sin. So he can represent us perfectly, and he perfectly understands us. But on the other side, Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully God. And so that means he perfectly reflects and represents what God is like towards us in our weakness, sin, and neediness. So Jesus is one with God the Father, And how Jesus is toward us when we're weak, needy, and sinful is how God the Father is toward us when we are in those circumstances. So Jesus is the perfect mediator, the perfect bridge between God and his people. He's perfectly merciful, perfectly faithful, perfectly gracious, perfectly reliable, perfectly compassionate, perfectly understanding, perfectly sympathetic, perfectly tender. Jesus always responds perfectly to us in our neediness, weakness, and, sin. and what's more is that Jesus didn't offer a sacrifice for himself as the other high priest did, but uh, he's sinless. And so what actually happens is he offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He's the high priest who's gone beyond all other high priests because they never offered themselves a sacrifice. They couldn't. They, were, they had sins. So how could they die for another person's sin? But Jesus is the one who's died for us and paid for our sin. So verse 15 is a statement of reality. It's a statement of what's true about Jesus. And then verses 14 and 16 each give an exhortation based on this reality. 
And so the reason that we should do what verses 14 and 16 say is because of what's true in verse 15. Verse 14 just quickly exhorts us to hold fast our confession to Jesus as our Lord. Don't let go. Keep following Jesus. Hold on to him. And why should you hold on to him? Because he's our high priest who sympathizes with us in our neediness. You just hold on to him. That's why you should keep going in this race of faith. You don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with you. He knows what it's like to be you in the middle of trying to live your life, trying to be faithful to him. He knows what that's like. Verse 16 flows out of verse 15. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So why should you draw near to the throne of grace with confidence when you need help? Because you have Jesus as your high priest who knows what it's like to be you. Why should you keep holding on to Jesus and not abandon faith in him? Because you have Jesus as your high priest. He knows what you're going through. And so we can ask a couple of questions. When are we to draw near? This verse tells us in our time of need. Why are we to draw near with confidence? Because Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. What do we get when we draw near? We get mercy and grace to help. We get better than we deserve and we get exactly what we need for that situation. And so you know, think about yourself. When do you feel confidence to go before God? This, doesn't, this passage doesn't say, draw near with confidence when you have it all together. Draw near with confidence when you have a good Bible reading and prayer streak. Draw near with confidence when you've avoided any major sins for a while. Draw near with confidence when you have your life together. Draw near with confidence when you clean yourself up. The verse doesn't say that. None of these are where our confidence is placed. We don't place our confidence in ourselves. We place our confidence in Jesus, and that's what gives us confidence to draw near, not because of what we've done, but because Jesus is our faithful, merciful, sympathetic, compassionate, tender high priest. And usually, we think the less weak, needy, and sinful I am, the more confidently I can go before God. But that is the exact opposite, and that's a lie straight from Satan, the devil, who wants to keep you away from the one who can actually help you in your weakness, neediness, and sin. You know, God, God isn't that good. You know, you shouldn't bother him. Like he's, he's going to freak out on you. He's not going to. You can't expect anything from him. That's to keep us from the one who can actually help us in those circumstances. And our confidence is directly related to our high priest, who knows what it's like to be us. He has this ability to know what our, we are going through. So why is Jesus' sympathy and understanding of us important? Well, think about how frustrating it is when you're talking to someone and you're telling them some hard thing you're going through, some pain you're experiencing, some, uh, something you're struggling with, and they just don't get it. They just can't see what it's like to be you. They're, they're unable to put themselves in your shoes. They're unable to see things from your perspective. They don't know how hard it is, how painful it is, how exhausting it is. And that person won't actually be able to offer you help because they don't understand what it's like to be you. So how could they say, oh, I I see what you're going through. Let me give you what would be helpful for that. But they don't understand what you're going through. And whatever advice they give is going to probably not fit. And even if it did fit the situation, you're not going to be open to it because it's like they're just not connecting with me. They're not open to hearing what's going on in me. They don't understand. They don't get it. I don't know if they care about how I'm feeling or what it's like to be me. They just want to get me better, get me fixed. They haven't come into my situation and understood it. 
And also, just think about when do you most feel like giving up? I most feel like giving up when I feel alone. It's and we might feel alone, not physically, but nobody understands what it's like to be me. Nobody gets it. Nobody understands. Nobody knows how hard it is, how much it hurts, how difficult it is to keep going. I'm alone in this, and I just can't keep going anymore because nobody is here with me holding me up. And this passage tells us that with Jesus, he's able to sympathize with whatever we have going on. And he can say, I get it. I understand. I know it's hard. When I'm feeling hurt, sometimes I find it easy, to a way to gain peace is to think, when did Jesus feel like this? I can, you can think about stories in the Gospels of like, when did he feel like this? And it helps me to then say, Jesus knows exactly how it feels to blank. Jesus knows exactly how it feels to be have people misunderstand you. Jesus knows exactly how it feels to be abandoned. Jesus knows exactly how it feels that people walk away when I most need them. Those, those are just three examples of what Jesus has felt in his earthly life. So you look through the Gospels and think, what does uh, Jesus experience? He's he's experienced to be misunderstood, to be betrayed, to be criticized and ridiculed, to suffer unjustly. And so you're not alone. When you come to Jesus, you don't find someone closed off to you. You don't find someone who doesn't get it, who doesn't understand. Even our misbehavior, our sin, our selfishness, our foolishness, our failures and mistakes, God wants to connect with us. And we're invited to draw near to the throne of grace where we'll find tenderness and warmth and open arms and compassion and sympathy. And it's actually in bringing our sin and weakness and neediness to Jesus that we get to experience God like that. Not in, I've come all together, God, and now it's like, oh, I'm so you know, warm towards you. It's in bringing those things to him that we get to experience God as he is and connect with him. And we can remember God is on our side against our sin. He's not against us because of our sin, if we've trusted in Christ. So that's empathy. You might be thinking, if that's halfway through, we've got a long way to go. Affection is going to be a little shorter. So affection is from Romans 8, 37 to 39. And in this letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, he spends eight chapters laying out the gospel. He gives us this greeting, and then he just spends eight chapters laying out the gospel. And the simple summary is this. In Christ, God is for us, even though he has every reason to be against us. In Christ, God is for us, even though he has every reason to be against us. And then Romans 8, 38-39, that we, I read earlier, is an exclamation point at the end of this gospel explanation he's been giving. And the last three verses zero in on God's love for us. So verses 37-39 say this. It says, Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Connected Families, this organization with these four messages, created an adaptation of this um, for the context of parenting. And they... They wrote it like this. For I am convinced that neither arguing nor defiance, neither sibling conflict nor disrespect, neither bad grades nor failure, neither whining nor lying, neither forgetfulness nor messes, nor any other misbehavior will be able to separate you from my love or from God's amazing love. And so for yourself, what do you think separates you from God's love? What could you do to separate yourself from God's love? What do you think God... Uh, when do you think that God couldn't possibly love you at that moment? 
Are you convinced that neither failures nor mess-ups, neither sins nor selfishness, neither your doubt nor your neglect, neither your past sins nor your future sins, neither your needs nor your weaknesses, neither your failure to love or your love of the wrong things, neither your guilt nor your shame will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are you convinced of that? And do you live convinced of that? Or do you feel up and down, like, wow, I'm kind of separated from God's love today. Ooh, God really loves me today because I'm doing well. You can think about how to fill in these two blanks. God loves me more when I blank. God loves me less when I blank. What would you automatically put in there? Not the Bible answer you know, but how do you feel? God loves me less when I haven't really been paying attention to reading my Bible. He loves me less when I've missed a couple church services. He loves me less when I've been you know, being very rude to people and kind of had a bad attitude. Or God loves me more when I've, I've really had things together this week. I, ooh, I gave some money you know, in the church offering or I helped this homeless person or whatever it is. God loves me more when I do this. He loves me less when I do this. And perhaps you need to write down your own version of Romans 8, chapter 8, 38 through 39, thinking about what are the things that you think separate you from God's love. And it's probably anything that you feel guilt or shame about. So think about when do I feel guilt and shame in my life? And you probably think, but that, sep- that thing separates you from God's love. And you can make that list, like, okay, here's all the things, you know, when I do this, when I do this, when I do this, when I do this. And you can just write above it, uh, write, it write on the paper above that list, none of this separates me from God's love. I do all these things, but none of it separates it from me. I heard another pastor say that there's two different ways to answer the question, how much does God love me? And... The one answer is according to law. How much does God love me? As much as I deserve. Or you can answer according to grace. How much does God love me? Way more than I deserve. And often I think we live with God loves me as much as I deserve rather than God loves me way more than I deserve. And the truth is that you aren't becoming a version of yourself that God will love more. The version of you now isn't loved more than the version of you a week ago. The version of you now isn't loved more or less than the version of you 20 years from now. And oh, when I'm finally over this, this bad habit, when I'm finally over this sinful thing I keep doing, you aren't becoming a version of yourself that God will love more. He loves and enjoys you now. So like I said, I've been on this personal journey of my own, asking, does God enjoy me? Does he actually like me? Can God actually be pleased with me? It probably started, I don't know, four years ago, just kind of like reading things or listening to things and looking at Bible verses and making notes like, oh, this is a verse that, that tells me that God loves and enjoys me and cherishes me. And I've found that when it comes to God's enjoyment of us, we need to separate uh, who we are from what we do. I found that super helpful that you remember who before do, who I am to God is always more important than what I do. He never forgets who I am to him. And so I kind of have these, this list of things I've, I think of for myself that help me. God may not love what I did, but he still loves me as his beloved son. God may not be happy with what I did, but he's still happy that I'm his child. God may not like what I did, but he still likes me. God may not accept what I did, but he accepts me. God may not embrace what I did, but he still embraces me. God may not be pleased with what I did, but he is pleased with who I am, his cherished child. He always enjoys, delights in, and takes pleasure in me as his child, no matter what I have done. Who before do? And that's true for each of you. Maybe you need to say that to yourself, because we can disappoint God. 
God can be displeased with what we do. But we need to remember, he may be displeased with what I do, but he's still pleased that I'm his child. He never feels that buyer's remorse. Like, I just wish you, I never see you again. I just wish you weren't part of this family. No, he may not be happy with what we've done, but he's always happy with us. So we can see God's shining, warm face towards us, that he wants to embrace us, even if he doesn't embrace what we've done. A few years ago, I was on a, in a learning group with a few other pastors, and in one of those sessions, it was like over Zoom, um, one of the pastors, Brian, shared something that really helped me with all this, and I asked his permission to share this story. And he told us how he had discovered that his teenage son uh, had been looking at pornography and had been lying to them, uh, I think, about that and possibly some other things. And he said, this, you know, this was hard. This was so hard on him. And it's easy to understand why, why that would be hard on him. But then later in the conversation, he said that his sons are phenomenal and he's really blessed. I, I was just like, my mind was kind of blown. I was like, that doesn't make any sense. How can, you know, you're saying your sons are phenomenal and you're really blessed. And just 20 minutes ago, you're saying you caught your son looking at pornography and lying to you. And I, I just didn't understand how could he think his son is phenomenal and count himself blessed with this other thing happening. And this moment was a turning point for me because Brian showed me a picture of God the Father's heart towards us as his sons and daughters. He showed me a way of reacting to sin that is unnatural to us as humans because we separate ourselves with, from sin. And we say, no, you're going to get what you deserve. And this showed me what grace looks like in action. It showed me that his son was never going to be separated from his love no matter what he did. If he looked at pornography or lied to him, still is going to love him. And so when we sin, God says to us, what you did wasn't great, but I still think you're great. I don't love what you did, but I still love you. I'm not pleased with what you did, but I'm still pleased with you. I don't want you to do that anymore, but I still want you. And this is love no matter what. And this is love, it's the most power, this kind of love is the most powerful force in the universe. To be loved like this is to be transformed. And so, here's the two truths about God from today. God is empathetic toward us in our weakness, neediness, and sin. He's warm, tender, and compassionate towards you, no matter what. Secondly, God is affectionate toward us in our weakness, neediness, and sin. God delights in you, takes pleasure in you, enjoys you no matter what. We were made to love and enjoy God. But we were first before that made to be loved and to be enjoyed by God. That's the first thing, to be liked by God, to be delighted in by God, to soak in the warmth of his joy and love towards us. God's no matter what love is what draws us toward God. It draws us out of hiding from covering up and from blaming. So if you want to write down kind of a a big idea for today, it's that uh, we need to be loved no matter what before we can give love no matter what. We need to be loved no matter what before we can give love no matter what. We need to be loved no matter what before we can give love no matter what. We can love our enemies because God loved us when we were his enemies. We can love people who are against us because God loves us and loved us when we are against him. Let's go back to think about that person in your life with whom you want more connection. 
How do you love them when it's hardest? How do you love them when they don't deserve it? How do you love them when it's the opposite of what you want to do? In that moment, you can remember and receive God's no matter what love for you. You receive it before you can give it. And so think about what makes that person difficult. If you didn't write that list down or if you want to keep it in your head, think about it. What makes that person difficult to love? And um, I'm going to ask you to write something above that and below it if you want to write it down. What makes that person difficult to love? that list, you can write, so have your list, and right above it, even when they disrespect me, frustrate me, annoy me, don't listen, write even when above the list, and at the bottom write, I will love them no matter what. So you have that list of things that makes them hard to love me. So even when they do those things, I will love them no matter what. Love no matter what means we love no matter what they've said, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're feeling, no matter what, how they've treated us, no matter what they've given to us, no matter what they've done to hurt us, disrespect us, annoy us, or cause us hardship. And so just practically, here's two ways that you can love no matter what through empathy and affection. The first is ask, what's going on in them? What's going on in them? Ask yourself, what's going on in them? To communicate the message, you are safe with me, we talked last week, is that we need to ask, what's going on in me? What am I bringing in this situation that is creating me to react so big to this? What's creating me to have such anxiety or worry or fear or anger? What's going on in me is how you are safe for someone. The way you can love them and show empathy is you ask, what's going on in them? What is it like to be them right now? What's their perspective? What are they experiencing? Empathy shows we care about what's going on for them, no matter what. And here's a saying I've learned from a podcast on parenting that I find helpful um, when I'm parenting Hudson, is that he's not giving me a hard time, he's having a hard time. You can say that about anybody. They're not uh, giving me a hard time, they're having a hard time. And that is like, well... They are giving me a hard time. Isn't that how we feel? Like that's what makes it hard, difficult for them to love. Like if only they would just listen. If only this person would do their job. If only this person could respect me. If they'd say this thing, they're giving me a hard time. This is hard. But when we switch to they're not giving me a hard time, they're having a hard time. This can help us begin to focus on the person and not just the problem or the pain they're bringing into our lives. In fact, we can begin to actually empathize with them because we're seeing okay. The things they're doing right now, like, you know, whether they're actually intending it to be against me or to hurt me or not, I can still say they're not giving me a hard time, they're having a hard time. And that begins to help you empathize what is going on in this situation for them. And this can snap us out of enemy mode, which is when we're seeing, you know, I'm, I'm against them. You detect they're against me, and so they're a threat, and now I'm going to be against them. But it snaps us out of any mode that we can be for them instead of against them, even if they're against us. We can say they're not uh, giving me a hard time. They're having a hard time. So first you ask what's going on in them for empathy, and second is remember, keep the relationship bigger than the problem. And I said this last week, but it's so key and so helpful. Keep the relationship bigger 
than the problem, and I should add pain. Keep the relationship bigger than the problem or pain. And this brings us back to who before do. God always keeps the relationship bigger than the problem of sin in our lives. God puts who before what we do, who we are to him before what we do. God does not love us because of our behavior, but in spite of it so often. God sees the person, not just the problem. So remember, who is this person to you? Is it you know, a friend, a son or daughter, a parent, a you know, sibling? You know, who are they to you? See the person, not just the problem or the pain. And so how can you show that you like them, even when they are doing what you like? Okay, what you're doing, I don't like. But I'm still remembering you're my friend. I'm still remembering you, you're my sister. I'm still remembering you're my dad or you're my coworker. Okay, I'm going to show that I like you, even if I don't like what you're doing. And, and you can think about, again, the person you want more connection with. What do they do that separates them from your love? And the person is more important than the problem or the pain they bring in. They're more important that, than whatever got messed up or got broken or got neglected or whatever they you know, didn't do for you. This communicates to them, you are more important to me than what you did. Your relationship uh, with me is bigger than this problem or this pain we're having right now. And this is how you can show affection no matter what. Because if you keep the relationship bigger then, and, and the person bigger than the problem or pain, you can show that you like them even when you don't like what they did. And both empathy and affection keep us focused on the person. Okay, if I'm empathizing with them, showing affection, I'm not just seeing you know this wall of barrier. You've done these things, and so now I'm not going to see you. I'm not going to do embrace you or show I like you. And maybe you're thinking, but they can't get away with this. They shouldn't have done this. Don't worry. If you look at the magnet, the magnet at the top, correction is the top thing. You're responsible for your actions. But this is often where we start. You did this wrong. This needs to be different. Hey, you hurt me. And what we're looking at is, well, that's, God starts with safety with us, with grace. He loves us. And he gives us a spirit so we can be called and capable. He made us in his image. And, but he also will say, you, you can't do that anymore. You need to stop doing that. And that's part of our relationships too. You know, Jesus was not a doormat. If you look, read through the gospel, Jesus was anything but a doormat. But he did die for our sins too. But he did it willingly. He chose to do it. He was doing it uh, out of grace and compassion for us. So we will get cor- to correcting, but we first connect. Correcting will come later. First we want to focus on connecting and empathy and affection or it actually opens our hearts and opens another person's heart to change. Because we just we talked about if someone's just like, you just need to do this differently. And it's like, you don't have no idea why, why I even did that, what my motives were, what was behind that, so what was going on for me. And we're like, I don't care about that, you just did it wrong. And it's like, how open are you when somebody does that to you? And God comes to us and he says, look, I love you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only, his only son. When we were the sinful world and rebelling against them, then he gave his son and now that draws us towards him in love because he first loved us. And as a church, God has called us to be a community that expresses his empathy and affection for one another. And he's called us to express that to those who don't yet know him. So whatever somebody has going on in their lives, like, God doesn't approve of that. Like They can't be living like that. True. And if people know you're an evangelical Christian... They already know you don't approve of that. And so you can actually love them, find out about them, listen to them, and see what, you know, what, how did you get, what, what led you to this place you're at right now? Like, what, you know, can you just explain that to me? Hear people's stories. 
when we become God's agents of love, as we love no matter what, and so, in so doing, people see and experience our God who really does love us no matter what. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us in all the times that we don't deserve it and that we don't earn it. We just know it's not possible to deserve or earn your love. So Lord, would you let us receive that this morning, that you love us no matter what. There's nothing we can do to change that because there's nothing we did to get it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.